Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. We continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, uh, words will be on the screen behind me. You can also find in uh, the Christ Church East app a sermon listening guide that has an outline and also has the scripture printed on the top of that listening guide. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 22. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There's that classic scene from the movie Christmas Vacation where Eddie and his wife and his children show up at Eddie's cousin Ellen and Clark Griswold's home unexpectedly for Christmas. And they roll up in their RV, and Eddie tells Clark, Clark, don't worry about it. We don't want to impose. We'll sleep in the RV. And Clark says, no, Eddie, we've got plenty of room. You guys come inside and sleep in the house. And that starts this hilarious movie of a family that unexpectedly moves in for three weeks into this home. Imagine if you had someone in your extended family or maybe friends unexpectedly show up at your doorstep and tell you that they're going to spend the next three weeks in your home. 
Or let's even imagine it's not totally unexpected, it's planned. What needs to happen for that visit to go well? Well, there needs to be a lot of communication. Expectations set. Boundaries communicated so that this move-in for three weeks goes well. This is where Israel finds themselves at this point in Exodus. God is moving in with them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He gave him his, them his commands at Mount Sinai, and now he is going to move in with them. They're in the wilderness. They're on a journey. Every night they set up their tents in the wilderness, and God is going to move in and set up his own tent right in the midst of them. And that tent is called the tabernacle, where God would meet with them. What expectations need to be set for this? What are the boundaries that need to be set for the tabernacle? What needs to happen to make sure that this move-in goes well? It begs the question, how does God, as a holy God, dwell with you, a sinner? How does God dwell with you? First, we're going to see it's through his mercy. At the center of the tabernacle, which was a, a portable tent that would get set up, packed up, moved along, set up again, at the center of the tabernacle was this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And verse 10 describes it. It was a wooden box, roughly four feet long, by two feet wide, by two feet tall. Verse 14 describes the poles that were put through rings on either side of the ark. And those were there so that they could lift up the poles and carry the ark on their shoulders, the poles on their shoulders. Verse 15 says that those poles had to be permanent, that they weren't to be removed. Why? Because the ark was not to be touched. The ark couldn't be touched. They had to pick it up by the poles and put it on their shoulders and it couldn't be touched because it was God teaching them the reality of his holiness. Now, we've learned a lot about God's holiness through this study in Exodus. What we've seen throughout is that God's holiness embraces all that conforms to it and destroys all that offends. We see this play out in the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Samuel 6, when they're bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, rather than carrying it on their shoulders with the poles, they decide to put it on an ox cart. And on the journey, the oxen stumble, and the ark starts to get unsteady. And so one of the priests, Uzzah, reaches out to steady the ark. He touches it, and he dies. God's holiness destroys all that offends. Now, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, you're not a believer, you're learning who Christ is, you're learning about Christianity, that's the kind of story that can seem very harsh. You mean a priest touched the ark and died? Or maybe if you're in Christ and you've been walking with Christ for a while, you hear that story and go, that just seems kind of harsh. Well, let me ask you this question or ask yourself this question. Have you ever looked at the world and thought to yourself, this world is messed up? Or thought, this world is not right? And have you ever thought, 
I long to see this world made right. If you've ever thought that, then that demands that God be absolutely holy. And that means that God has to be absolutely committed to purging what is unholy, what is not right in his world. Not just part of it, not just some of it, but completely holy to purge everything that's not right or not holy. Now, the problem is, for God to do that, that would mean you and I get purged because you and I are sinful. And yet we see that God doesn't do that with his people. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant is so important to understand because this piece of furniture explains how a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. Three components to the ark that were important. First, in verses 18 to 20, you see the two cherubim described that were on top of the ark. Two cherubim, they were angels, says that they had their wings spread and that they were looking down on the lid of the ark. Why were they looking down? It was a posture of worship. It was an act of worship. Why were they bowed down worshiping? Well, verse 22 tells us who was between the two angels or the two cherubim. There, God says, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So between the cherubim, God dwelled. That's the first component of the ark that's important to understand. The second piece or the second component that's critical is what was inside the ark, inside this wooden box. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. This was the tablets of stone that contained the Ten Commandments. Those were put inside the ark. These were broken commandments because God's people would regularly break the Ten Commandments. That's the second piece or a second component of the ark. The third component of the ark that was critical is the mercy seat. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. So you had God dwelling between the cherubim, looking down on the mercy seat that covered the broken Ten Commandments. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, every year, the high priest would come into the center of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, with blood from a sacrificed animal, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Symbolically representing that as God in his holiness looked down on the broken commandments of his people in the Ark, would see the blood of a sacrifice. And that his holiness would destroy the substitute animal that was sacrificed, the blood symbolically would satisfy his wrath so that his people who were sinners would be spared. That was what was going on with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we learn in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9 describes this same Ark of the Covenant from Exodus 25. And in Hebrews 9, 5, it describes the mercy seat. That word mercy seat in Hebrews 9, 5 is the same exact word in the Greek in Romans 3, 25, describing Jesus. Listen to it. 
Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. His blood covers us, satisfies God's wrath so that God's holiness destroyed the substitute Jesus because our sins were put on him so that his holiness could embrace you because Jesus' perfect righteousness was given to you. So that if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are embraced by God's holiness because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God dwells with you through mercy. We are a people of mercy, a people who have received mercy. Now here's the question. If God dwells with you through his mercy, how do you dwell with others? How do you dwell with others? Jesus tells this amazing parable in Matthew chapter 18 about a king who had servants. And all of these servants owed the king money. So he calls in his first servant. The king calls in the first servant who owes him 10,000 talents. In modern day money, that is $3.5 billion. The servant begins to plead mercy with the king because the servant cannot pay it back. And it says the king born out of compassion for his servant, released him and forgave the debt. Then the parable says this servant who was just forgiven went out and found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii. In modern day money, that's $5,800. This servant begins to plead for mercy because he can't pay it back. But this servant who has just been forgiven $3.5 billion seizes him, chokes him, and throws him in prison until he can pay back the debt. Now the king finds out about it. And the king calls this servant in, and this is what he says to him. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Do you know what prompted Jesus to tell this parable? His disciple Peter came up to him and asked Jesus this question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Seven being the number of perfection in the Bible, 70 times seven basically means infinity. There is no limit to the number of times that you forgive. Why? Because there is no limit to the number of times that God forgives you. Your sin against God is like the $3.5 billion and others' sin against you is like the $5,800. Who do you need to forgive? 
Who are you locking in an emotional or physical prison? Walling them off or giving them the silent treatment or disowning them or shutting them out until you're convinced they have felt enough of the emotional or maybe even physical pain of being apart from you until you feel like they've paid down the debt. Who are you locking in prison by failing to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? God dwells with you through mercy and calls you to dwell with others through mercy. But the second way that God dwells with you, first through mercy, but second, it's through his people. He dwells with you through his people. God could have given uh, his people in the desert a ready-made tabernacle, right? This, this tabernacle could have just come out of the sky and landed, but he didn't do that. Right? Verse eight, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The people built the tabernacle. They constructed it. They participated in the building of the tabernacle. So a couple questions arise. Number one, is there a tabernacle today? Is there a tabernacle today? And, and if there is a tabernacle, how do we build it? And you say, well, on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a tabernacle today. We don't have a, a tent structure set up with lampstands and a bronze altar and the Ark of the Covenant in the middle. The key to understanding the tabernacle today is found in John chapter one, verse 14. And the word, referring to Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word for tabernacle in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So what it reads is, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle where God would dwell with his people in the wilderness became the permanent temple, a physical building, which gave way to Jesus Christ being the tabernacle. Right, Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was referring to the physical temple, the building. He was referring to his body. 2 Corinthians 6.16 for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The tabernacle today, the temple today is the people of God. All that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the church, not church building, but church people. That is the tabernacle. So the second question is, then how do we build the tabernacle today? And how does what God prescribes in Exodus 25 for building the physical tabernacle apply to building the tabernacle today of God's people? So chapter 25, we're gonna look at the details of what God tells them on building the tabernacle and then apply it today. You see in, in Exodus 25, there's, Two big picture instructions on building the tabernacle. It required generosity and it required attention to detail. Generosity and attention to detail. Look at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. 
that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. The building of the tabernacle required generosity. It required every person to give towards it. The key here is it says what, how the heart is moved. It wasn't compulsory. It wasn't a tax. It was what each person decided they were going to give towards the building of the tabernacle. And so we see here basically three questions with this generosity. Number one, who were they giving to? How much did they give? And what did they give? Well, the who that they were giving to is defined in verse, verses one and two. It says, God says to Moses, take a, a contribution for me. They weren't ultimately giving to Moses, nor were they giving to a building project. They were giving to God. Now, how much were they to give? Well, verse two, from every man whose heart moves him. As I just said, it wasn't compulsory. It wasn't a tax. They were to decide, but intentionally decide how much they were going to give towards the tabernacle. Right? And then what did they give? Verses three to six list all the things they, they gave towards the construction of the tabernacle. Here's the key to understanding all that, those things that are listed out. Those were all things that they had first received from God. So look at the gold, the silver, right? The precious gems. That was all plunder they had received from Egypt when God brought them out of Egypt. The wood was to be taken from trees that God had planted on his earth. The cloth was to be taken from animals that he had put in their flock. There was nothing that they gave that they first hadn't received from God. They were giving what they had received from God. And they gave what they were stirred to give. It's like a mom and a dad who at Christmas give their young children money to buy them a Christmas gift. Right? When, they, they, when mom and dad open up the gift, they're opening up, they're, they're, they're receiving what is their own. See, it's not, a, it's not a matter of how much money or where it comes from. It's the affection of the children towards their mom and dad. And so mom and dad provide the means by which the child can tangibly express their love towards mom and dad. And that's what's happening here. And that's what giving is. God gives us everything. He gives us the means by which we can tangibly express our love towards him. And that's why giving is 100% about your relationship with God. 100% about your relationship with God. So what does this look like in the tabernacle today? The tabernacle being the people of God. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, just to reinforce what the tabernacle is today. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place. There's that tabernacle language for God by the Spirit. The temple or the tabernacle grows every time God descends and dwells in the heart of a lost and dying sinner. The tabernacle or the temple grows every time someone repents and turns to Christ. The tabernacle or the temple grows every time someone is delivered from an addiction and brought into a relationship with Christ. That's how the tabernacle grows today. It's as the body of Christ grows, as people put their faith into Christ. And that's why we bring our offerings. That's why we bring our offerings. Now, two questions about the offerings. What do you bring and how much do you bring? What do you bring? It's basically three things. It's your money, it's your time, and it's your talents or your, your spiritual gifts that God gives you. Those are the three things that have been given to you by God. You receive them and then they're given back to him for the growth of the body of Christ. How much do you give? You'll find percentages in the Old Testament. You'll find 10% for a tithe. There were additional tithes on Israel. An Israelite that was tithing faithfully of all the different kinds of way they were to give was probably giving 20 to 25% of their income. But what we see here in Exodus 25, the key is they were to, they were to give what they were stirred to give. This ties us to the New Testament. New Testament, you won't find percentages or even amounts. You'll find this, though, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's almost identical language to Exodus 25 too. Right? They would give what they were stirred or moved to give. Paul says here, you give what prayerfully you have decided in your heart to give. It's, it's not the amount, it's the intentionality. So rather than I'm gonna spend my money, I'm gonna spend my time, I'm gonna spend my talents how I wanna spend them, and then if there's leftover, I will give that towards God towards the church, towards the kingdom. No, it's just the opposite. Intentionality means this. You decide prayerfully how much you're gonna give. Of your money, of your time, of your talents, to the church, to the kingdom, and then what's ever left over, that's what you organize your life around. And even that belongs to God. So even that is then used, spent, given for his glory and his honor. So the building of the tabernacle today, God descending and dwelling in the hearts of lost and dying sinners requires generosity. But second, it requires attention to detail. Look at verse nine. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall 
make it. There was great detail in the tabernacle, incredible detail. And the instructions from God to Moses were, you make this tabernacle exactly how I tell you to make it. So what are the instructions today for building the tabernacle, building the body of Christ, the community of God's people? What are the instructions today? Is there attention to detail today? Well, the instructions today are the roughly 59 one another commandments in the New Testament. Roughly 59 one another commandments in the New Testament. Now I'm gonna read all 59 to you. No, I'm not gonna do that. But I'm gonna read you some of them. Some of them are a little repetitive, but here's a good chunk of the one another commands. Honor one another. Don't grumble against each other. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Carry one another's burdens. Encourage one another. Teach and admonish one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear with one another in love. Forgive whatever grievances you have against each other. Do not slander one another. Serve one another. In what the news called the miracle at Kew Creek, back in 2002, summer of 2002 in Pennsylvania, nine miners were trapped in a mine shaft 240 feet below the ground that had flooded, that had filled with water. The water was 55 degrees and was threatening to kill them with hypothermia. Three days later, they were rescued. And after they got out of the hospitals, they were obviously interviewed by these news stations to find out what exactly happened. Listen to how they spoke of what happened in that mine shaft. One miner said, they decided early on they were either going to live or die as a group. And then one miner said this, when one would get cold, the other eight would huddle around the person and warm that person. And when another person got cold, the favor was returned. Everybody had strong moments. And then one miner said this, but any certain time, maybe one guy got down and then the rest pulled together. And then that guy would get back up and maybe somebody else would feel a little weaker, but it was a team effort. That's the only way it could have been. They faced incredibly hostile conditions and they came out alive together. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, of what it means to love one another so well that the temple, that the tabernacle of God, that the people of God grow and flourish. God dwells with you through mercy and through his people, his tabernacle. Chuck Colson, in his book, The Body, says this. 
Many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life, what sociologist Robert Bella calls radical individualism. They concentrate on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me. But in doing so, miss the point altogether. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. Any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of that which is the essence of the faith. That is, the people of God, the new society, the body of Christ, which is made manifest in the world, the church. If you're new here or you've been here for a while, and you've asked the question, why does Christ Church East put such an emphasis on community groups? Why do they announce it every Sunday? because of this. Community groups are the expression, the place, the venue of expression of all these one another commands in the scriptures. And I will confess that the past year, 11 months, almost year of pandemic has made groups very difficult. Rhythms have been disrupted. But that does not take away from the priority of God's people living in community, one another, another, each other really well, so that the tabernacle, the temple of God grows. And as people experience that one anothering who are not a part of the body of Christ, look at that and they see mercy and forgiveness and bearing one another's burdens and caring for each other and the strong helping the weak. And when the weak get strong, they help the weak. The world sees that and goes, can I have a part of that? What's behind that? And it's Christ, his mercy for us. We are a people of mercy. God dwells with us through his mercy and through his people that are his community. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of mercy. And we are a people desperately in need of it. Father, thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve. Thank you for treating Jesus, your son, as our sins deserve. And thank you for his righteousness that brings us to a place where your holiness embraces us. Father, we believe that you're that you dwell with us through your mercy, but also through your people. We have felt the fracture this past year. We felt the fracture of community groups on Zoom and then meeting every other week and feeling distant. In the summer when we took a break, it has been so hard. Father, may our experience over the past 10, 11 months, rather than bringing bitterness, Father, would it bring in us a realization that we're made for community? The pandemic has challenged that. 
And may we see that and go, all the more. We want to be a part of each other's lives and one another well so that your temple, your tabernacle, the body of Christ grows and grows that we would see people come to know Christ and be added to the body because they've been loved well and they've seen community as it's supposed to be done. As we respond with singing now, would you help us to worship you as the giver of all good gifts and offer you our voices and our songs, imperfect as they are, to praise you and honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.